0: Hello and welcome to the Freudcast, I'm Matt Barbette. For the most part, the business of news is about being first, getting the scoop, rushing to the next thing and so on. In experiencing all of that herring around, James Harding concluded approaching news like a tortoise might be better. Having edited the Times and run BBC News, he left the relative safety of those historic organisations to stick his neck out and develop something slower in its approach. James spoke to my colleague at Freud's Laura Round to discuss the change of pace, the challenge of founding a new type of newsroom and the impact the pandemic has had on tortoise and on journalism in general.
1: So, James, in 2017, you decided to leave behind the BBC newsroom, which has more than 8000 journalists around the world to set up a different type of newsroom, uh, Tortoise, which is designed for slower and wiser news. Uh, But before we get into that, I would love to know what it was like leaving the commercial world of Murdoch for a resolutely uncommercial and relatively safe world of the BBC.
2: The, The weird thing is, Laura, is that actually, in some ways, all newsrooms are the same. You know, there's the same metabolism there are the same kinds of people are attracted i remember when i left the financial times where i worked first and i went to the times i remember sitting in the very first news meeting and thinking oh this is all exactly the same We're having the same conversation. It kicked off with a discussion about labour markets and who was working and who wasn't. And then I remember the second item in that newsroom discussion that day was about a squirrel who'd broken into someone's home while they were on holiday and eaten all their furniture. And I suddenly realised I'd left the FT and I'd landed at The Times, which was in many ways uh, more human in its agenda and certainly its interests. When I arrived at the BBC, it actually took me a while to realize exactly what was different, partly because so much of the uh, tempo and so much in its interests were so similar to the times. But I remember being uh, actually not in the BBC at all, on a train journey, traveling through Wales and stopping in a small, really small town and thinking, I've worked as a journalist for however many years, it was nearly 20 years by then, And pretty much no one had ever read in that town a story I'd written for the FT, and probably a vanishingly small number of people were daily buyers of the Times, but everyone got the BBC. And it was that moment I remember sitting thinking, this is really the difference. It's not so much commercial, it's not so much Murdoch, it's that in the establishment of the BBC, and you can hear I'm still a lover and a believer in it, in the establishment of it, there's an idea that it serves everyone. that in fact, as John Reith, its founder, put it, it's there to give the best of everything to everyone. And universality is what changes the way you work as a journalist. If you're having to deliver stories that work for everyone, you approach things differently. So yes, it did make a difference that you weren't trying to create a product against which people could sell advertising or make sales directly but it was the licence fee and the, and the implications of that in terms of delivering news for everyone that really changed your news agenda and your thinking.
1: Of course. And, and so when did you then come up with the idea of Tortoise?
2: Ah, oh, so the, the curious thing was, when when you arrive at a place like the BBC, there's always someone who takes you around. And I think that the nature of that introduction is that it's supposed to make you feel better, make you feel at home. And I remember the person who took me for my uh, induction um, said, amongst many other things, oh, you know that here at the BBC we produce four seconds of news for every second of the day. Wow. And in the course of the time that I was there... I suppose I sat through, you know, a couple of UK general elections, the US presidential elections, two uh, referendums, one in Scotland, one on Brexit. And and it's an amazing privilege, don't get me wrong, to sit in the middle of a newsroom with that level of expertise and that reach But more and more, I found myself thinking, I've got access to everything and everywhere, but I don't really understand what's driving the news. And it felt to me as though there was a world of noise out there, but understanding the forces that were driving the news, there were fewer people doing that. And there was a chance to try and do something different and try and do slow news, and hence the name tortoise. Uh, And when we started thinking about slow news, when we started thinking about what a different kind of newsroom would be, you realised you really had to do everything differently. You had to not just take your time, you had to pick your uh, agenda differently. You had to have a different relationship uh, with the people who were coming into your newsroom. You had to open up journalism. All of those things had to change if you were going to try and do news differently.
1: That is fascinating. Uh, the reaction to Tortoise has been very positive. And in fact, it was the largest journalism project to ever be launched on Kickstarter. What was that process like?
2: But really nerve-wracking. You know, there's that, there's a really weird thing where you think, okay, well, we're about to start. And of course, you rev yourself up to an extent. And both Katie Vanek-Smith, who's my co-founder, and Matthew barson who's my fellow co-founder, and I – All I remember the night before thinking, we're going to launch this thing. I wonder whether anyone's actually going to be interested. And um, someone had sent us a uh, a little tortoise uh, with a bell on it. And so every time someone clicked on and said, yes, we'll back you. We, uh, we at the time uh, rang that bell and then very quickly it just took off. And and, and our Kickstarter campaign was an interesting thing because we had investors who were, who were financing us. What we were really trying to see was whether or not there were people who were gonna be up for buying into the product who wanted a different approach to news. And our offer to them was to say, Look, we're going to do three things differently. We're not going to try to be the first with the news. We're not interested in breaking news. We're interested in what's driving it, hence, slow. We're not trying to be a closed newsroom where we've got secret projects and everything happens hush hush behind closed doors. We're going to open our newsroom and invite you in. And we're actively, and this in journalism is something of a heresy, we're actively going to take an interest in what happens next. So we had an agenda around our news, around these big five themes technology, the 100-year life, wealth, belonging, and our planet. And those five things really dominated the way in which we've looked at the news agenda. Um, And so the thing that was really significant for us when we launched on Kickstarter was this sense that, oh yes, there are people who share our interests and are interested in our approach.
1: You've managed to bring some fantastic journalistic talent uh, onto the team. Um, Was that easy from the get-go or is that just sort of as you built more momentum that you started getting more interest or?
2: Yeah, look, I feel really lucky that an amazing group of people have joined us Um, and I suppose the thing is that a lot of us in news, a lot of us in journalism are trying to figure out how do you do it uh, differently, how do you deal with this world of accelerating changes Um, in such a way that you're not feeding a headline addiction, but you're trying to take some time to think to get a better understanding. So I think it's all of us, you know, there are are these moments in the media where people stop and say, well, how could we do this differently? And I think that's what brought uh, a group of people Mm. together.
1: And so you also host weekly news conferences. Tell us about that.
2: I was on the Tube. I remember those days when we were all on the Tube, but I was on the Tube one morning. This was three, four years ago, maybe even longer. And I was sitting, I was reading my old paper, The Times, and it was actually on the carriage floor. I can't remember why I put it on the carriage floor. Oh, this, I was looking at the paper and I was reading a letter. And it was a letter about Yemen. And some, a group of people, three people had written in to talk about the UK government's response to Yemen. And as I was looking at the paper, I then turned to read the leader column, right, the editorials. I suddenly thought, I wonder what the editorial would have read like if it had been written by those letter writers. And the reason I started thinking about this was when I started editing The Times, I'd gone for lunch with, uh, with William Rees-Mogg, who was this sort of groundy editor of the paper. And he'd taken me for lunch to sort of essentially talk me through it. And we had this very naive and sweet conversation of sort of two newspaper obsessives talking about which was our favorite page in the paper. And and William loved the letters page. He thought the letters page encapsulated all of the best about the times. It was its uh, eccentricities and its expertise and the enthusiasms of its readers. And I said that I loved leaders. Right? And the reason I loved leaders was when you start thinking what your view is on a subject, actually you discover what you really do and don't know. And it's it's the one that actually, I think, pushes your journalism forward, pushes that process of interrogating a subject forward. And so I was on this on the tube that day um, and I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, imagine if your letters, your leaders were written by your letter writers. Could you tap the expertise and the experience of your readers to inform your journalism? And then I thought to myself, well, you could, if you created a forum where you essentially had leader conference, but anyone who was a quote-unquote member of your newsroom, anyone who was uh, participating in Tortoise could actually come in and be a part of it. And so we we initially thought of calling them just leader conferences, but uh, we actually call them think-ins because really what it is, is it's like one uh, sort of, Great session where people sit together and try and think through a particular subject or problem. And so we started holding these think ins. Um, They started off, you know, early on, there'd be once or twice a week. Um, And pretty quickly we were doing one every day. One of them, as you say, is weekly, is just an open news meeting where just anyone can come, anyone can bring any subject they like. We discuss the news agenda as it is. But most days our think ins, Are focused on a particular subject. So, um, you know, and then of course, you know, since the pandemic, what you've seen is that we've taken them all digitally. And so we have, you know, really, really large numbers of people joining us every day to discuss and and examine and debate what's happening in the news. Um, Last night we were thinking a lot about corruption. Tonight we're thinking about the global front line, particularly what's happening in terms of you know, potentially unseen humanitarian crises and the next possible wave into developing countries around the world. Um, But every day we have a different subject that we look at and we bring in expertise. But critically, we hear from our members. We have one rule in these thinkings, Laura, which is no questions. We don't want panel discussions. We want to hear people's different points of view. And the idea is that you take that old, leader conference format where everyone pipes up, where it's a system of organized listening and a, a forum for civilized disagreement. You pull those things together to come to a better informed opinion. So that was, if you like, the really key, key thing for us at Tortoise. That, was, that is the, the way in which we propel our journalism forward, uh, driven by the ideas of experts we bring in uh, and, the, and the members of Tortoise itself.
1: I mean, I have to say, I mean, I love your thinkings, and um, you know, I've been a member for a while. Um, but your thinkings, in particular, are, are, are is something I I really really love about Tortoise, and the lineup during um, this pandemic, in particular, has been has been very impressive. And as you say, I've noticed it's incredibly well attended. So, I mean, you, you touched upon you know you touched upon the pandemic, and your answer just fair. I mean, um, from what I can tell, I think. You've, you've already obviously have made a name for yourselves, but especially, especially during this crisis, I think you've um, got, it seems to me that you've managed to um, increase your, your reach of, of an audience. I mean, how has COVID-19 affected Tortoise and um, how have you adjusted to it, as it were? How, how have you responded to it?
2: Well, I think like everything, there's a... There's a uh, firstly, the truth is like I think everybody, there's a lot of up and down. You know you know in the way in which you could sometimes uh have moods or, or phases that would run for days or weeks, I think all of us are finding that we can cram a lot of those feelings into a day, but overall, you're right for us, it has really reinforced what we're trying to do and then revolutionized the way we do it um what we're trying to do in the sense that we're we're not trying to keep pace with every single bit of uh, breaking news. We're trying to understand what's driving it. So that means that there's been a really big increase in the number of people signing up to our daily email newsletter, the Sensemaker, because it, it is what it, or at least it tries to do what it what it says it does. Just make sense of things. Just focus on you know whether it's testing and tracing, or ventilators, or vaccines, or international comparisons, or, you know, economic impacts, you know, our daily sense makers trying to say, okay, I know you're overwhelmed by text alerts and, and news noise, but this is what's really significant, we think, today. And we do it every day within the context of those big five I mentioned, you know, the planet, belonging, 100-year life, uh, technology, and wealth. We keep on looking at things through that lens. But having a news agenda that's not trying to do a lot and do it quickly, but identify what matters, there's been a real uh, appetite for that. And then when I say it's revolutionized the way we've do, done things, is that, of course, we were hosting our thinkings ins um, originally in, in our newsroom uh, in, in central London. Um, I mean, really, actually around the corner from Freud's offices, we were, you know, 500 yards away. And there were a couple of issues with that. One was just space. You know, so we started off, there were not so many of us, but pretty quickly we were selling out. And even when we sold out, that meant we would have 750, 800, maybe 1,000 people come through our newsroom in a week. As we move to something digital, were, obviously the numbers are much much larger you know and now on an average week, um, there are probably eight to ten thousand people signing up for Tortoise Thinkins and our partner events and so there's been something that's been transformative about digital thinkings. But the thing that's really excited me about that is not just the scale of it, which obviously matters, but also the big issue for us was always, how do you have an open newsroom that's not constrained by its geography? That's not just a group of people in London taking a kind of London view of the world. And how do you have a mix of people with really different views? Because there's no point touting yourself as a forum for civilized disagreement, if everyone arrives with the same point of view. And the thing that's been amazing about digital is that actually a digital thinking, the newsroom itself is more open, it's more accessible, and in a strange way, it's more democratic. Everyone, if you like, is in the same shaped screen and has, in that sense, the same status. And so what we've felt is that although, of course, we've had our sort of, cl- you know, clunks and glitches, actually as a way of communicating to people around the world in different parts of the country and on a whole range of subjects, it's been, it's been extraordinary and given us a sense of what a really open newsroom could be.
1: Mm. And um, just thinking a bit more widely on the impacts of COVID-19, I mean, what what impact do you predict the pandemic is going to have on on journalism as a whole?
2: Well, there, you, you know, there, there are two b- broader issues. I think one is economic. So even while journalists are doing something that is incredibly valuable, um, the business model of it is under assault in a host of ways. You know, putting aside the BBC and the license fee, you know, um, in businesses that are ad funded are going to are facing an incredible assault on their business model, one that's gone on for a long time but now has just accelerated. And then I think there's this second set of questions, which is about the way journalism is conducted and what people think of the journalism they're getting. Do they feel as though it informs them? Does it provide context for the way in which things are happening? Does the does the journalistic pack operate as a pack, or does it give a real diversity of views and insights? Do do we feel as though our media gives us a sort of day traders' point of view, you know, stuff that's relevant within the twenty four hours, or a or a longer a, a longer look at things? So I think they're two different issues, and they're both obviously. Profound, the economic one, but also the 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 service itself of journalism. Both of those things, I think, are being tested. The you know, I suppose the one thing that um, you know, you don't want to when you feel as though everyone is working incredibly hard under really difficult circumstances to be, you know, to to be too negative about it. And there's something obviously that is really valuable now and valued about information in a way that have perhaps been lost uh, uh, in, in in more normal times. Um, but there's no question at all that it's really challenging. And And I suppose if I'm candid about the way I feel on this, I'm really aware that the The news media so far, and perhaps understandably, has really focused on the health crisis and taken the economic havoc as secondary. And it's almost as though the government's uh, narrative on this, which is you know you can't get the economy restarted unless you've you, you know you've dealt with the health problem, has sort of been imbibed somehow. I think that these things are both real; that both the health and the economic issues are real. They are both causing, obviously death on the one hand, but also pain, suffering, and and they have to be addressed in lockstep. And that's not just by politicians and policymakers, that's by the media too. So I suppose if there's a tilt to me, it's about how you begin to focus in a way that's much more, that makes people much more aware, not just of the acute health crisis, but of the chronic uh, economic one.
1: Another thing I just wanted to touch on is last year you launched the Responsibility One Hundred Index, um, a ranking of the FTSE One Hundred companies and their yeah. commitment to key social, environmental, and ethical objectives inspired um by the UN sustainable development goals, which are of course very close to our heart here at Freud's. Um, what has the reaction been to this index?
2: Well, it's been it's sort of been amazing. I'll tell you I'll tell you where all of that came from, which is that Um, Richard Curtis, the mighty Richard Curtis, um, I was talking to once and he was talking about comic relief and then was talking about, uh, an idea he'd had, and this was a few years back, um, for, or at least a year or two back, um, for an investment fund, right? So rather than just actually donating money to advance the the, to address the problems you see, could you create a fund that would invest in some of the answers to those problems? And then as his thinking developed, he, uh, and I know Freud's been uh, backs of this and, and helpful Tim have thought, actually, how do you, instead of creating a fund, incentivize funds, particularly pension funds, to invest in um, in businesses that are going to be good for the environment, that are going to address social inequalities, that are going to be fair in their governance. And when he started talking about that, I remember thinking, you know, the problem is, I don't really know which of the companies that are good and which aren't. And how do I tell the difference between the companies that say they're doing good deeds and those that actually are? Um, and a colleague of mine had joined us at Tortoise who used to run Moody's, the ratings agencies, and the ratings agency. sorry, and and had worked on building something called the Prosperity Index. So she was really used to developing really complex data sets to answer, you know, very big public questions. And the, the, the question we had was, could you measure the FTSE 100 companies against, as you say, the UN's SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And she and a group of uh, uh, data scientists sort of sat in a windowless room for a number of months and came out with a way of doing that. And that was the responsibility 100 index. Um, and it's been amazing. A- and perhaps, Laura, I think the most amazing thing, um, and in fact, we talked about it at uh, Gold's house in uh, in Davos, and Richard Curtis was there, and the Freud's team were there. Um, a- and it was really... Amazing, because perhaps the most valuable thing is not the ranking, but the process. The thing that really has struck me is that some of the data that we've got around this, some of the data around emissions, for example, you know, is not perfect, but but good. And it has a certain level of confidence amongst people. Some data around things ranging from human rights to water pollution to biodiversity impacts, well, people are really divided on whether or not there's any reliable data and whether or not it's possible, therefore, to measure what different companies are doing. And so the value in no small part of the Responsibility 100 Index has been convening those companies and saying, can we try and look at the metrics themselves, because if we can agree metrics that we all think are actually reliable indicators of the way companies are behaving, that itself would incentivize different behavior. And the reason we did it on such a big canvas, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, was we didn't want to just um, uh, focus on planet, we wanted to focus on people and planet. and that's, And that's what we've done. And out of that, we've now built this thing called the Responsible Business Forum, where companies can come together and argue and debate about the, the metrics themselves. And I know that sounds really sort of technocratic as a way of handling this problem. But actually, if you care about it, you want to make sure that it's not just a chief exec who's out you know, saying what needs to be said, but the company itself is doing it, and so the Responsibility One Hundred Index has this measure: the walk versus the talk, and it measures what people say against what they're actually doing. Um, so, yeah, it's been a big part. It, it, it's it's uh, it, it goes back to the point that um, I guess I was making at the beginning, which was being willing to 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 be a newsroom that that took an interest in what happens next.
1: And so, just to just to um... Uh, round it all off. I mean, what is next
2: for, for Tortoise? Oh, well, you catch me, I guess, like all of us, you catch me really deep in thought about that, because I suppose we're now a fair few weeks, nearly a couple of months into a lockdown. And the first couple of weeks were scrambling to say, could we work from home? You know, how had, had everyone remember to bring their charger so they could operate their laptop? And then there was this period, I think, that lasted maybe three, four weeks of, if I'm honest, excitement. Excitement at what we could do digitally, our thinkings. I didn't mention our podcasts as well. That's really taken off as well. Um, There was excitement, but there was also a kind of intellectual excitement, uh, which was, well, if we are able to do this much, not just tortoise, but society, the world, at such short notice, what else could we do? you know if the world can print quite so much money to deal with a pandemic we really can plant a trillion trees because we can print some money to to fund that there was suddenly there was this period i think that was really optimistic about how we live next and then i suppose the last few weeks have been much more dominated by the the prospect of a serious recession and a long slog uh, to to get back to work, but then to get back to work in a way that does uh, prioritize the things that things that we care about. Um, so for us, you know, specifically, it means really making sure that our think-ins operating digitally uh, are 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 the the best open news meetings, the best in open journalism anywhere in the world. It means, I think really understanding how the world can and will change. So we're really focused on what we call our tortoise files, the big in-depth investigative pieces into one big story or subject a week. Um, And then I suppose... Our big task is going to be to figure out how we reach more members and more partners, more individuals and more businesses to work with us at a time when I know everyone is going to, or well, not everyone, lots of people are going to feel, you know, constrained and quite cautious. Mm.
1: James, thank you so much for, for joining the Freudcast.
2: Laura, thank you so much for having me on.
0: All the best of luck with it. And thanks to you for listening. You can hear other Freudcasts featuring stories from the likes of best-selling author and artist Charlie McAsee, The River Cafe's Ruth Rogers and political pollster Professor Sir John Curtis on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. You can also get updates and plenty more about Freud by searching for us on LinkedIn and on Instagram. Bye for now.